What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul defends against three different things that are trying to undermine Jesus's supremacy, undermine his sufficiency. Uh, first, Paul defends against empty philosophies. Uh, second, he defends against uh, religious legalism. And the third thing that Paul's going to defend against that we'll look at this morning are false doctrines. And, you know, the world is full of false doctrines. There's a slew of them. But Paul really is just going to emphasize and focus on two specific false doctrines that were coming against the Colossian believers. And those two were idol worship and asceticism. Idol worship is when you worship something other than God, when you allow something else to come and be the thing that you're ultimately putting your focus and your worship towards, you know, our culture is full of idol worship. You know, it's full of people who are taking God from the place that he should be, the place of worship and honor and glory, and they're putting something else there. Uh, for some, it's themselves. For others, it's money, it's fame, it's power. You know, oftentimes when we think of idol worship, we just think of people kind of bowing down to come some statue, but, you know, it's really ultimately anything that we worship, anything that we replace God with as the priority of our life that we're ultimately living for. And so we have a, a big problem within our culture in this way. And I think one of the areas where Christians often suffer the most is when we try to add something else. It's like, Lord, I'm going to worship you and I'm going to worship another thing and try to do them both at the same time. And, and as we'll see this morning, that this doesn't work. And so uh, the first false doctrine that Paul is going to warn us against is idol worship. And because this is such a big problem in our culture, because this is something that we see getting adopted into the church world, you know, we need to be aware of it and we need to, you know, steer clear of it. Uh, the second false doctrine that Paul is going to address is asceticism. Asceticism is an extreme self-denial of physical desires in order to attain a greater state of spirituality or to attain a higher spiritual plane. So this belief teaches that, you know, if you will just deny yourself, your physical body, certain, you know, necessities or certain desires like, you know, food or clothing or warmth, or, or even for some, they'll say, you know what, I'm going to be, you know, uh, just an abstinent for uh, the rest of my life. So some kind of comfort, well, that enables you to attain a greater state of spirituality and many take it even a step further that if you punish your physical body whether it's through whipping it or or you know just putting it through some kind of torment and struggle that that also is something that helps you gain some deeper and greater spiritual plane or spirituality you know, this extreme self-denial, it's really actually seen in most religions. When you look at pretty much every religion there is, there's an aspect of this where, you know, somehow, you know, just this denial of your physical desires of, you know, necessities will somehow bring some spirituality to you. But the most uh, significant religions that actually really practice this are Hinduism, Buddhism. We actually see a lot of this in Judaism as well and in Islam. You know, a good example of this extreme self-denial, probably the first group of people that would come to mind would be monks. You see, monks, they separate themselves from the world, you know, ultimately because they want to get away from the temptations, the physical desires that the, the world might bring, and they go live in a monastery where they deny their physical body all sorts of physical comforts. You know, it's cold, it's damp, they sleep on hard beds, they, you know, don't have much more than one change of clothes, they usually don't wear shoes, uh, they fast regularly, don't eat as much as they should. There's all these 
these things to kind of, you know, um, just come against their physical uh, body, which they believe is going to bring some spirituality. It's going to attain some greater depth of spirituality. Now, you don't have to go to the extreme that monks do to fall into this trap of asceticism. You know, this false belief that extreme self-denial of physical desires that makes you more spiritual is very common in our culture. It's very common, unfortunately, in the church as well. It's something that many Christians get caught up into because it seems to be spiritual. It looks like, well, yeah, this would really make you godly. And so people can get caught up into it thinking that's the way to become spirituality. That's what produces spirituality just in my own family strength, deny my flesh, and that's going to make me spiritual. And the reality is that is not how it works. You know, asceticism is something that the Pharisees practice. You know, they believe that this extreme, you know, external denial of the flesh and, and of different things, you know, all this fasting and the things that they did, oh, that was what was going to make them so spiritual. They focused on, you know, the outward, but yet they neglected what truly is the source of spirituality, what is taking place inwardly and what God is doing. And Jesus rebuked them often for that reality. And so both idol worship and asceticism are belief systems that they're very prevalent in our culture. They've you know been adopted into the church. Sadly, if you go and read several books and, you know, there's, you know, within the Christian bookstores, there's things like this that are being, you know, um, encouraged on us and promoted by different religious leaders. And we need to recognize that this is not biblical and we need to steer clear of them. So Paul's going to start here with kind of addressing this first false doctrine, which is the one that's obvious for us, but yet still something that we struggle with, which is idol worship. Let's see what he says in verses 18 and 19. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Before Paul gets into the issues that he wants to get into, he brings up something that I think is very important. He says, let no one cheat you of your reward. Now, what's something that's very interesting here, if you remember back in verse 8, when we were kind of starting these three specific dangers, Paul talks about, you know, the, the philosophies that could cheat you. And he says, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. Now, if you're reading the New King James Version, you see in verse 8, it says, let no one cheat you. And then we come here to this verse, and once again, we're we're told not to let people cheat you. But this is one of those things where we discover that, you know what, sometimes words aren't translated the way that we would want, because these are actually two different Greek words with two different meanings. But yet, when you read it, you think it must be the same word, because it's translated the same way both times, cheat and cheat. Uh, and so I want you to understand this is a different word. Um, some of your translations translate this word defraud, uh, which is a little bit more accurate. Uh, as we already looked at back in verse 8, the other Greek word means to carry off one's possessions, to carry off as a captive, to lead away from the truth. But here the Greek word translated cheat means to decide as an umpire against someone, to defraud or beguile of the prize of victory. Now what's interesting is the context in which this word was most commonly used was in the Greek Olympic Games. So it was used to describe an umpire who would strip someone of the medal that they won. Why? Because they didn't compete according to the rules. It was discovered that they cheated in some way, shape, or form. And so the umpire would strip them of the reward, of the prize, or the medal that they got for competing and winning because they didn't compete according to the rules. And so Paul's saying, hey, don't let let anyone defraud you of your reward. Don't let someone strip you of the reward that should come to you. Why? Because you don't compete the way you should. You don't compete according to the rules that you should. Now, most likely the reward that Paul is speaking of is the reward that the Bible reveals to us that each one of us as believers in Jesus Christ will receive for the things that we do in this life for Christ. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 through 15, we're told this. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. What this verse is revealing is that everything we do in this life, one day when we die and we stand before Jesus, all the stuff that we've done is going to be tested by fire. And only those things that were done for Jesus, for the purpose of his glory, not for ourselves, are going to endure. Those are going to be the things that are gold and silver and precious stone. And so when the fire tests them, they're going to last and we're going to be rewarded for all eternity for them. And the things that we did for ourselves or for something else... They're going to be like wood and straw. They're just going to burn up. There's not going to be any eternal reward for them. And so when Paul uses this Greek word, meaning to decide as an umpire against someone, he's painting this picture of a race because that's kind of the context in which that word was used in the Olympic Games. But I find that interesting because Paul actually speaks about a race. And he's using this word of don't, you know, let someone cheat you or defraud you or take away the reward because you're not competing according to the rules. In 1 Corinthians 9, 24 and 25, Paul says, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. The Christian life is like a race, but we need to run the race in order to win. Run it to obtain the prize. But here's the thing that Paul is warning us about. There are going to be people who are going to try to get you sidetracked. There are going to be those who are going to try to rip you off. There are going to be those who are going to try to share things that are untrue and false so that we don't compete according to the rules, so that we don't do what God desires of us. And so at the end of the day, there are rewards we're missing out on. There are things that are burning when it's tested by fire. Why? Because we're not competing the way that we should. We're losing rewards that we could have. Paul goes on to reveal the false doctrines that are ultimately being used to cause people to lose the rewards. Notice what he says in the rest of verse 18. Taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up in his fleshly mind. So notice these people who are trying to cause us to lose the reward that we would only receive if we live our lives for Jesus Christ they take delight in two things. They delight first in false humility. Now, it's interesting for those of you who have the ESV version, this translates it asceticism. The second thing that we're going to be focusing on this morning, and I think it's interesting that it translates it that because asceticism really does bring a sense of false humility. Oh, I'm denying my flesh all these things. I'm denying my physical body this and that. I'm actually punishing my body in this way. And it looks like, wow, look at that hum humble person. They're so humble. But the reality is it actually produces a huge amount of pride. Why? Because I'm denying myself all of this and you're not. And I'm so much more spiritual than you because I actually believe that in denying myself this, I am becoming more spiritual. And so instead of being the humble person that I appear to be, it's a false humility because I actually am quite prideful because I think I'm better than all of you who don't deny yourself or beat yourself or do these things to your body that I do. And so therefore, I'm more spiritual than you and better than you. And it brings this pride but people think it looks humble, so it's a false humility. But we'll get more into that in verses 20 through 23. So I just want you to note that Paul's bringing up this first kind of issue, this thing that they delight in, this false humility, this asceticism. And the second thing they take delight in is the worship of angels. Notice that they delight in this. 
They delight in worshiping something other than the one true God. That they worship angels, and they're actually not even just worshiping angels. The, the, the problem is they're also encouraging the Colossians to do the same. And so this false worship, this idol worship, is something that, you know, not only do they practice, but do they promote to other people. And I want you to recognize that the worship of anything, even angels, you think, well, angels are great and they're wonderful. They're messengers of God. It's a sin. When Satan tried to tempt Jesus to worship him in the wilderness, notice how Jesus responds to Satan in Matthew chapter 4, verse 10. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. The worship of anything, no matter how valuable you think it is, no matter how good you think it is, the worship of anything other than God is sinful. It goes against God's commandments. But you know what? Just like with Jesus, Satan is constantly trying to tempt us to worship first and foremost him, but anything ultimately that would lead us from worshiping the one true God, that would cause us to worship anything but the one that we should be worshiping, the only one who is deserving of our worship. Or he'll say it in a more subtle way. Oh, no, no, you don't have to stop worshiping Jesus. Just add something else. Worship Jesus and worship this thing or worship that thing as well. There's nothing wrong with including other things in your worship. And when Satan tempts us like this, we need to respond as Jesus did. Away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. So these false teachers, they delight themselves in asceticism. They delight themselves in idol worship. And notice what it leads to. It really is going to lead to two different things. The first thing we see at the end of verse 18 is really connected more with those who have this uh, extreme self-denial concept. Paul says, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. You know, one of the things that is really one of the worst problems that people have is a spiritual arrogance, a spiritual pride. And we see this with these false teachers, and it's really promoted by this thought that, you know what, I am so much more spiritual than you because of the things that I deny my physical body, because of the, the things that I put my physical body through, and it brings this, you know, arrogance and being vainly puffed up in their minds. But you know what? When they practice idol worship, there's something else that it caused. Notice what he tells us in verse 19. And not holding fast to the head from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. Another problem that these false teachers had and it's a big problem for anybody if they have this. It's not holding fast to Jesus, the head. The Greek word here translated hold fast means to take hold of, to seize, to never discard or let go, to continue to hold on to. Well, this is something the false teachers didn't do, that they didn't hold on to Jesus. And one of the reasons they weren't holding on to Jesus is because they're holding on to something else this false idol worship of angels. And so, you know, this is a problem that they had. Their worship of angels ultimately kept them from holding on to Jesus. And this is something that we need to recognize. Once you start to worship something else or to add worship of Jesus, you know, put something else in that, you ultimately have to let go of Jesus in order to hold on to the other thing. You can't hold them both. And this is the problem that they had. 
You know, my girls loved for me to hold them, and when they were real little, it was real easy to hold them both. Now they're getting a lot bigger, and to hold them both for any long period of time becomes difficult, and so it's a lot easier just to hold one. But if I pick up one and hold them, right away the other one's there. Oh, Daddy, I want to hold. I want you to hold me. I want you to hold me. And so I'll, you know, if Scarlett's there, I'm holding her. I put her down, and then I pick up Eden. And, you know, I've got to a place where it's like, you know what? I can only do one at a time here. Uh, But, you know, there's this reality of, hey, if I'm holding one, it, it keeps me from holding the other, and so I got to put this one down if I'm going to pick that one up and hold them. But in the same mindset of worship, so often it's like, okay, well, I'm holding on to Jesus. Oh, now I'm going to add this. Well, what happens? So I got to let him go so I can grab hold of this other thing, and it brings huge problems because I'm now no longer holding on to the one that I need to hold on to, which is Jesus. And Paul goes on to give us an illustration to help us see why holding on to Jesus, never letting him go, is so important. Paul says, it's from Jesus the head that all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. And so the illustration that Paul gives us is is of a human body. And he's saying, hey, the most essential part, the part with the brain, the part that, you know, kind of keeps everything, you know, going the right way, that's the head. And he's saying, that's what Jesus is. It's what helps you grow. It's what helps, you know, everything to function the way it should. And you remove the head, you're dead. You know, there's nothing else. You know, there's no more growth. There's just death. And so in the same way, he's saying, hey, Jesus is the head. You don't hold on to him. You let him go. He's no longer a part of the body. Then everything else is just going to crumble and fall. Everything else is going to die. You cannot lose the head. You cannot stop holding on to him. There'll be no more growth, just death. Jesus said in John 15, 4 and 5, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. This is one of those verses that are just so clear but hard to really put into practice that Jesus is saying, hey, without me, you can't do anything. You stop holding on to me. If I'm no longer what you're connected to, you know, I'm the vine, you're the branch. And when that branch is removed from the the vine, guess what? There's no fruit. It's just death. It just withers and dies. It has to be connected to the vine. That's where all the nutrients is. That's where everything that it needs to survive is. And so Jesus is saying, you can't break me off or everything's going to be bad. Paul's using a different analogy. The head, you lose that, it's all over. But both of them are bringing up the same reality. It's essential that we stay connected to Jesus, that we hold fast to him. Warren Rearsby wrote this, Christ controls every part of his body, the church, and it is inspiring, ruling, guiding, combining, sustaining power that the mainspring of its activity, the center of its unity, and the seat of its life. True spirituality comes from tenaciously holding on to Christ, the head of his body. See, I love this because what these false teachers are saying, no true spirituality comes from, you know, in your own flesh trying to deny your body certain things and that's what's going to make you spiritual. And they stopped and they probably never did hold on to Jesus and Warren Wearsby's bringing up, no, 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 you really want to be spiritual. You have to stay connected. You have to hold on to the source of spirituality, which is Jesus Christ. Now, a very common lie that many Christians accept is that you can worship Jesus and worship something else. There's no problem with that. It's not going to hinder your worship of Jesus. You can just still worship Jesus like you always have, but just add something else. There's nothing wrong with that. You can have two masters that you worship. Well, Jesus addresses that false belief in Matthew 6, 24. He says, no one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Jesus is making something very clear. You're going to only have one master. 
One that you really put on the, the throne of your life, that you say, you are the master that I worship, that I serve, that I, that I give my life to. And whenever we get to a place where we say, you know what, I'm going to have more than one. Oh, I'm not going to replace Jesus. Don't worry, Lord. You're still on the throne. It's just now we got two thrones or maybe three thrones. And, and so I'll worship you. You'll be master number one. And then this is going to be master number two and, and maybe three and four. And, and we think it's okay. I can do that. But notice what Jesus says. Once you make another master, you're going to love one and despise the other. And the reality is, and maybe sometimes we don't believe it to be true, the one we start to despise is Jesus. The one that we lose the love for is him because now it's being replaced and it's being given to something else that doesn't belong there, that should never be worshipped, that should never be placed on the throne of our life. So don't fall for the lie that you can add to the worship of God, that that's not going to be a problem for you, that adding something else, that putting something else in that place, you know, it's okay. No, it's not. It will destroy your worship of God. So the first commandment is you shall have no other God before me. Notice what they say in, you put anything before me, no matter what it is, that's idolatry. And that's where we miss it sometimes. It's not like, oh, I'm going to have this idol in my house and be bowing to it every day. No, just put something before God. Put something in that place that only He belongs. And then all of a sudden, our priorities get messed up. Our life gets messed up because we have removed God from the place that He belongs. Whenever we have something else that we value more, that we live for more than God, that's what we're truly worshiping. And when that happens, we need to make some serious changes. We need to put God back in his rightful place. We need to have him as our number one priority, as the one who truly is the Lord master of our life and worship him alone. So the first false doctrine that Paul addresses is idol worship. And the second one that he brings up is asceticism. And to really fully understand what Paul is warning us against here, I just want to give you a little background of things that would be happening there in Colossae, but it also would be the same in really most any church. Because the Colossians, like I hope most churches, they had a desire to be spiritual. And that's a great desire, to want spirituality, to want to grow to be more spiritual. You know, that's a natural thing for a Christian. That's a good thing for a Christian. But the question is, how do I grow spiritually? And this is really the problem that aestheticism brings because it brings a false way to become spiritual. And so it's declaring, this is how you be spiritual, but that's not. But it's tempting. It seems to be good. It seems to be something that would work. And so it's brought to Christians to say, oh, this is the path. This is the way. But something we need to understand is the only way to be spiritual in the biblical definition of the word is to be filled with and governed by the Spirit of God. See, oftentimes when we think of being spiritual, we just think of things we do. But let's understand something. The only reason that we can do anything for God is because we are filled with His Spirit and that He enables us through His Spirit to accomplish that. And so if we ever get to the place where we think, through my flesh through denying my body certain things, through having some regulation and rule that I put myself under, that is what makes me spiritual. It's not through the power of the Spirit working through me and working in me, then we've missed it. That is not where spirituality comes. It does not come through our own fleshly strength denying our physical desires or needs. But this is the thing that we so often associate with being spiritual. It's what we don't do or what we do do. And, you know, this is what was going on with the Colossians. That teaching that, you know what, you want to be spiritual? Well, then you need this extreme self-denial. The question is, what causes, what brings, what enables you to grow to be spiritual? Will you become spiritual from the outside in or from the inside out? 
You see, asceticism teaches you're going to be spiritual from the outside in. It's from the outer things that you do that ultimately will make you spiritual. Is it outward things you do that change you inwardly? Or is it a change that happens inwardly that affects the outward? Well, the Bible makes very clear it's actually the change that first starts inwardly when we accept Christ and we're indwelt by the Spirit of God. That is what ultimately brings the outward change. But what this is teaching is, no, 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 the change starts outwardly. You just make this choice in your own strength. You know, deny yourself this and deny yourself that and punish your body in this way. And that will bring an inward change. That will bring some spirituality to your life. Your nature will change. Your will will change. All these things will change inwardly, but it's not true. It starts with that first encounter where we accept Christ and he indwells us with his spirit. It's something that is inward first that ultimately influences our outward. So these false teachers, they would say, you know what, if you want to be spiritual, the way to do it is deny your body, deny your flesh. And not just the luxuries of life, but even some of the necessities of life. And then punish your flesh by putting it through horrible hardships. And so they'd come up with all sorts of things that you couldn't eat and you couldn't drink, activities you couldn't do, things you couldn't own, and all these would deprive yourself. They would punish yourself with the hope that your heart and your will and your nature would be changed in the process. They also had a list of stuff that you had to do to be really spiritual, like vows of silence, vows of poverty, vows of chastity, long times of fasting. And doing these things would supposedly guarantee your spirituality. I think this is one of the biggest deceptions that Christians fall into. Why? Because it looks so spiritual. And the problem is, it's focusing on the wrong thing. It's focusing on what we do in our flesh to make us spiritual instead of what God does in us through His Spirit to make us spiritual. Let's see what Paul has to say about this in verses 20 through 23. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Paul here asks a very important question to start off with. He says, if you died with Christ to the basic principles of the world, why? As though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations like do not touch and do not taste and do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. So Paul's question is, why are you subjecting yourself to these regulations, these doctrines of people? Not that regulations and doctrines that God has established, but why are you subjecting yourself to this? The Greek word subject is a military term, which means to rank under, to put into subjection, to submit and obey. If you were a private, you would subject yourself, put yourself under rank to the general because the general is at a higher rank than you. And so you make a choice to subject yourself to someone who is over you. And so Paul's question is, well, why is it you're subjecting yourself? You're willfully choosing to submit yourself and obey these different man-made regulations. You see, this is what was going on in the Colossian church. These false teachers were coming in and saying, if you really want to be spiritual, you got to do this, this, and this. And you got to stop doing this, this, and this. And you got to deprive yourself of this, this, and this. And then spirituality is going to happen for you. And so, okay, I'll subject myself to that. I'll deny myself these things. I'll no longer do those things. I'll start doing this and and I'll deprive myself of that. And if that's what it takes to make me spiritual, then that's what I'll do. And Paul's saying, why are you subjecting yourself to this man-made nonsense? Paul gives two reasons 
why we shouldn't buy into that false teaching. The first reason is at the beginning of verse 20. If you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world do you subject yourselves to regulations? Notice the question that Paul poses here before he even gets into this. He makes an important statement to help remind them of a very important doctrinal truth that perhaps they forgot. It reveals why we shouldn't subject ourselves to these regulations. The important doctrinal truth that Paul wants them to remember is that Jesus died for our sins and he rose again. And when you and I accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, guess what? We died to those things. We were raised in Christ to walk in newness of life. So Jesus' death on the cross, it freed us not only from the penalty and power of sin, but guess what? It also freed us from something else. It freed us from having to try to live under the law, to try to attain and keep the law in a perfect way, to try to receive God's approval. We don't have to do that anymore. Why? Jesus did it on our behalf. We're no longer you know, relating to God based on, am I able to check every box that the law brings to me? I'm, I'm incapable. But guess what? You and I don't have to relate to God that way anymore because of what Jesus did for us. That is not the relationship that we have. We've been freed from that. And what a great thing. Paul spends, you know, huge portions of his writings writing about the the value and liberty that comes because Christ has made us free and we don't have to be under the law anymore. But how foolish to say, I've been freed from that, but now I'm going to put myself under more regulations? This time it's not even God's standard. This is some person who says, these are the things you need to do in order to be spiritual. These are the things you need to stop doing. These are the things you need to deprive yourself. He's like, why are you subjecting yourself back to that when you have been completely freed in your belief and relationship and trust in Jesus Christ? He has freed you through the work that he did for you on the cross. You know, this false teaching that was happening there in the Colossian church is definitely happening today. You got lots of people coming into the church saying, hey, these are things you need to avoid. These are things you need to do. These are things you need to deprive yourself on. They write books. They go on speaking tours. They do all sorts of things. And they say, if you do it, that's what's going to make you truly spiritual. Paul says, no. That is not what makes you spiritual at all. Our spirituality and our acceptance from God comes because of what Jesus has done for us and what Jesus does in us. It does not come because of what we do for Jesus through our own fleshly efforts. Isaiah 64, 6 is something that we all need to remember. But we are all like an unclean thing, And all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. We love to believe a lie. A lie that my own fleshly efforts, the work that I do in my flesh have value. Actually, I believe that they have so much value that it can bring me into a relationship with God. It can bring acceptance from God. It can even bring salvation from God. It can bring spirituality into my life that my own fleshly efforts and works, whatever they may be in this instance, to deny my body certain things, to deprive myself of certain things, that there is so much value in that that's going to make me spiritual. But you know what Isaiah tells us? Our works, those things that we do in our own fleshly efforts, to us they might seem real valuable, but that's really irrelevant. What do they see? What does God see when he looks at that? How does he view that? And Isaiah said to him, they're like filthy rags. There's no value in them at all. We think it's so valuable. We think it's going to produce so much. And God says, no. Your efforts in your own flesh have zero value in trying to be spiritual and getting God's approval and getting any type of salvation. 
And so the first reason why we shouldn't fall into this false teaching and subject ourselves to all these different man-made thoughts as to how we can become spiritual is because Jesus' sacrifice for us freed us from that. We don't have to relate to God like that anymore. And praise God that we don't because none of us would succeed. None of us would ever be able to do it. And it's just so foolish that people still try because all their efforts are useless and in vain and it's not producing anything that they think it is. And it's sad to watch because, you know, a lot of them have good hearts and they're thinking, I'm doing so much and God's going to love me. It's like, no, you've missed it. It's not about you and all these things that you're doing. You got to come to Christ. You got to hold on to him. The second reason for why we shouldn't fall into this false teaching is in verse 23. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Notice what Paul says about these regulations, these false teachers were saying must be done. First, he says they have an appearance of wisdom. So they look like they're wise, but they're actually not. They appear to be really wise. This appears to be a great plan to you know, attain spirituality, but it's just appearing that way. It's not truly wise. It just kind of looks wise. And he gives us three examples of things that appear to be wise. The first is self-imposed religion. Self-imposed religion is something that you choose to place on yourself that God never intended you to do. It's what these guys are doing. Hey, here's the things you must do. Here's the things you got to stop doing. Here's what you deprive yourself of. Oh, the the Pharisees, they were great at this. They had lots of self-imposed religion that God never intended. Jesus rebuked them all the time. God never intended that with the Sabbath. God never intended that with this or that. This is self-imposed. You put this on yourself to think that this is making you more spiritual. This is not something that God imposed on you, but yet it appears wise. It appears spiritual, but it's not. The second example that Paul gives that appears to be wise is false humility. False humility is to pretend like you're humble when you're really not. And as we already noted, you know, this is just a natural byproduct of this extreme self-denial because you believe that in doing so you become more spiritual. Well, the natural byproduct of that is pride. I'm more spiritual than you because I've deprived myself of more things than you have or I do more things than you do, or whatever it may be. It's this false humility. It looks like, wow, you went and lived in a monastery and you deprived yourself of all these things. You are so humble. When actually they're sitting there thinking, I'm so much better than you because you're you know, indulging yourself in the world and you, you know, aren't doing the things that I'm doing. Third example that Paul gives of things that appear to be wise is neglect of the body. The Greek word translated neglect means to not care for something. One of the regulations these false teachers were told, telling others was, hey, you just need to neglect your body, neglect it of, you know, its desires, neglect it of its necessities, just stop feeding it as much, don't give it as much water, don't give it as much comfort, be abstinent, take away all these things, and man, you were going to be so spiritual. So Paul's saying, hey, these three things that are all connected with asceticism, oh, they sure look wise, they appear wise. From the outside looking in, you can see why people would get duped by it because, yeah, I can see why that would make you spiritual. I mean, look at all these outward things they're doing. Wow, it's amazing. But notice, it just appears that way. It's not truly wise. Why? Because it doesn't produce spirituality. So it's a waste. But this is why so many people get deceived. This is why so many people who are Christians get sucked into this. And this is why we need to be alert and aware and warn because it's easy. It's our flesh that says, I love the fact that I could deprive myself and make me more spiritual. I love the fact that in my own effort, I could accomplish something that you can't and I'm more spiritual than you now because of it. You know, we like that. It promotes our own, you know, pride and things within us and it's something that often is seen as like wow yeah that that makes sense to me i could see how that would make you spiritual but this is exactly what the pharisees look like they appeared to be religious they appeared to be spiritual everybody who looked at them 
You know, that would be, hey, who's the most religious people here in Jerusalem? Well, the Pharisees, of course. I mean, look at these guys. Look what they do. I mean, they're the spiritual ones. They're the truly religious ones. And all these different regulations, they tried to live by outwardly so they would look spiritual. But guess what? Inwardly, they were far from God. Luke 11, 37 through 39 said, And as he spoke, a certain Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So we went in and sat down to eat. When the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. Then the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. Many times Jesus brought up the real problem with the Pharisees. Oh, outwardly, you guys look great. Another time he says, you're like whitewashed tombs. Oh, yeah, you you keep the tomb looking real nice in the outward, but guess what? Inside, you're just full of dead man's bones. Inwardly, you're spiritually dead. Outwardly, you look like these spiritual giants who do all these different things, but inwardly, you're far from God. You see, their problem was that none of their outward works could change their inward spirituality. They're still far from God. All these outward things didn't bring them any closer, didn't make them any more spiritual. They sure thought it would, but they were wrong. Inwardly, they were sinful and wicked. No matter how many works they did outwardly, it could never change what they were inwardly. And that's the mindset that these false teachers have. Hey, all these outward things are going to change you, make you spiritual. But it's not true. Charles Spurgeon wrote this, Talk is easy, but walk is hard. Speech any man can attain unto, but act is difficult. We must have grace within to make our life holy, but lip piety needs no grace. Some people I know of are like inns, which have an angel hanging outside for a sign, but they have a devil within for a landlord. There are many men of that kind. They take good care to have an excellent sign hanging out. They must be known by all men to be strictly religious, but within, which is the all-important matter, they are full of wickedness. There are many books which are excellently bound, but there is nothing within them. And there are many persons that have a very good spiritual exterior, but there is nothing whatever in the heart. And this is the problem. Oh, yeah, I can do all these external things all I want, but it's just, it's a facade. It looks great, but it doesn't change me inwardly. It doesn't make me more spiritual. It doesn't make me closer to God. And Paul ends with a huge problem that these people with this belief system face. Notice what he says at the end of verse 23, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. The Greek word translated value means a price paid or received for a person or thing bought or sold. And so what Paul is saying here is actually quite interesting. The only way to overcome the indulgence of the flesh, and that's what they're thinking, well, I'm going to overcome the indulgence of the flesh by going and denying it. I'm not going to, I'm going to deny it this, and I'm going to deny it that, and I'm going to even make it go through all these horrible things. But the only way to overcome the indulgence of the flesh is if a price is paid for that to happen. But here's the problem. None of our works have any value. They're like filthy rags to God. None of our works can pay the price to enable us to ultimately overcome the indulgence of the flesh. William Vine wrote this. The false teachers claim that by their asceticism, they purified themselves from the flesh, whereas they were actually governed by it. And this is the sad twist of fate for these people who think, hey, I'm doing these things and it's ultimately making me more spiritual. It's ultimately overcoming the flesh when actually it's causing you to be governed by it even more. Because it's all about the flesh. In my own fleshly efforts, I'm denying my body to become spiritual. And I'm thinking in doing so, I'm overcoming the flesh. But actually, the opposite is happening. I'm actually being governed by it even more. 
So basically what Paul is saying is that all of these regulations that you're doing are worthless in helping you overcome the indulgence of the flesh. And since they're worthless in helping you overcome these indulgences, worthless in making you spiritual and right with God, why are you continuing them? But there's good news. The good news is that there was a price paid that has great value. Enough value that you can overcome the indulgence of the flesh. And that price wasn't paid by you. It wasn't paid by me. It was paid by Jesus on the cross for our sins. And what he has done is valuable so much to God that it enables us to overcome the indulgence of the flesh. That we now have the power of the Spirit dwelling within us. That we are forgiven of these sins that we've committed. That we no longer have to relate to God based on this works-based mentality. You see, spirituality is something that starts inwardly through a work of Jesus in us. It is not something that starts outwardly through works we try to do in our flesh for God. You know, trying to become more spiritual by outward works would be like going and buying you however millions of dollars you would spend on a Van Gogh painting. And after bringing it home, you think, you know what? This could use a little more color. This could use a little more detail. And so you get out your finger paints and you kind of add what you think is, should be on there. I mean, nobody in their right mind would do that. Because when Van Gogh was done, he was done. What he created was a masterpiece. It doesn't need anything added to it. In the same way, the salvation that Jesus has accomplished for you is a masterpiece. There's nothing that you need to add to it. It's complete. It's done. In fact, anything you try to add is just going to mess it up, so don't do it. The only power for a holy life in an unholy world is the Holy Spirit. Not our flesh, not what we can do. It's the power of the Spirit of God in us and through us. You know what? We don't need to try in our flesh to deny our flesh. Instead, we need to do what Galatians 5.16 tells us to do. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You see, the people who are practicing asceticism are going about it all the wrong way. I'm going to overcome the flesh through the works of the flesh. No, no, no. Paul says, you want to overcome the flesh? Walk in the Spirit. That's how you overcome it. It's walking in, depending on the power of the Spirit within you, which is a natural product, a byproduct of that will be, I'm going to start denying the flesh. I'm no longer going to give in to the flesh. I'm no longer going to be living for the flesh. Why? Because I'm now living for the Spirit. I'm dependent on the Spirit. I'm walking in the Spirit. And so that should be the focus, dependence on the Spirit of God, living for the Spirit of God, not each day in my own fleshly power, I'm going to deny myself some fleshly things, and that's somehow going to help me overcome it. It won't happen. So we don't have to have an extreme self-denial of the flesh. We just need an extreme dependence on the Spirit of God. Now, I don't want you to miss what Paul is saying here. He is not saying that doing good works is a bad thing. He's not saying that denying your flesh is a bad thing. Doing works for God is a great thing as long as you have the right reason for doing them. And this is the problem. This is the real main issue the Colossian believers were getting duped into believing they were doing it for the wrong reasons, with the wrong motive, with the wrong power. And so Paul's warning is not against doing good works. It's not against a denial of the flesh. It's against doing it with the wrong motive, with the wrong power, with the wrong reasoning. See, once Christ works in you, the natural response is going to be an outward change. You, know, you accept him, the Spirit of God dwells in you, you spend time with him, you're going to start changing the way you speak, the way you act. There are going to be outward things that change because of the inward work that has happened. And so the Bible's not saying, oh, don't worry about the outward. It's just saying, understand that you know the power, the motivation, the reason for why outward change can happen is only because of the work of Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit of God inwardly. So there are two things we need to remember about the works that we do for God. First, what's enabling you to do these works? And second, what is motivating you to do these works? 
What enables us to do these works for God is the power of the Holy Spirit living in us. What motivates us to do these works for God is ultimately love for Him and the relationship that we have for Him. Those are the things that should be driving us. The power of God and a love for God should be the things that cause us to live for God. Now, the reason it's so important to remember this is because the works you do for God and the works that these false teachers who are claiming, hey, do this, do that, deny yourself this, outwardly can look very similar. And this is why it looks spiritual, but it's not. Well, the outward on both of them is kind of kind of look the same, but it's the motivation, it's the power, it's the reason that's different. And one reason ultimately brings spirituality and one does not. Let me give you an example. If after accepting Christ and growing in your relationship with him, you know, you start to get this burden for people in need. You say, you know, I want to go and I want to reach out to those who are homeless. I want to feed them. I want to share the gospel to them. I want to clothe them. I just have a real heart to go and outwardly physically help them in the needs that they have. And so you go on the street, you meet up with these people, you give them clothes, you give them food, you share the gospel with them, but you're being motivated by your love for God and love for people. You're being empowered by the spirit of God in your life. But you know what? Someone practicing asceticism could also think, you know what, to make me really spiritual, I need to do more for other people as well. And so I'm going to go and I'm going to feed some homeless people. I'm going to give them some food. And so, you know, here you are and here they are. And you got a homeless person on this side of the street and they got a homeless person on that side of the street. And outwardly, what you guys are doing looks pretty much identical. You're both feeding them. You're both, you know, giving them clothes. But the difference is, you're both motivated very differently. You both think they're accomplishing very different things. You're both empowered very differently. You're empowered by the Spirit of God. You're motivated by love for God, love for others. You recognize this isn't causing you to be loved by God. This isn't giving you salvation. This isn't giving you some kind of, you know, whatever from God. You already have that in Jesus. You're just doing this out of love. Where this other person... They're motivated by the fact that if I don't do this, I'm not spiritual. If I don't do this, God doesn't love me. I have to do this in order to get approval from him. And the strength that I rely upon is in me, in myself. And so they look the same, but they're completely different. One produces spirituality. One does not. And we need to recognize that because the fact that it does look similar causes a lot of people to buy in to this false belief. That in my own strength and efforts, by denying my flesh, I'm somehow going to be some spiritual giant. And that is not the way the Bible tells us things happen at all. Now, both idol worship and asceticism, you know what? They seek to undermine Jesus' supremacy and sufficiency. This is something we've seen with all three of these dangers. Empty philosophies, they seek to undermine Jesus' supremacy and sufficiency. Legalism seeks to undermine Jesus' supremacy and sufficiency. Idolatry definitely seeks to undermine Jesus' supremacy because you now are putting someone else as the supreme thing in your life because Jesus isn't it anymore. He should be. He's the only one who deserves worship. He's the only one who deserves you to put him on the throne of your life. But when you remove him for that or you add something else to that, he is no longer supreme to you. And so it undermines his supremacy. And for those who fall for the lie of asceticism, that you have to have some extreme self-denial in order to be spiritual and accepted by God, you're declaring that what Jesus did on the cross is not sufficient that you have to deny yourself, that you through your own power have to do these things because what Jesus did isn't enough. It wasn't sufficient. And so both of these things are ultimately seeking to undermine a very important biblical truth that Jesus and all that he did for you and who he is is completely sufficient and supreme. And we need to recognize that because if we miss that, we subject ourselves to these lies that come and they're packaged in ways that look so appealing, that look so spiritual. We see other Christians doing it. We read people putting them out in books and we think this must be right. This must be true. Look at that group doing it here. And we miss the biblical reality that no, it's not. 
And it's not going to accomplish what they're claiming. It's not going to make you spiritual. It's just going to make you miserable because you're doing all this work and it's gaining you nothing. So don't fall for it. Let's pray. Father, are we so glad that you did it all. Lord, as we have failed and fail and continue to fail and Every day, at the end of the day, we look back and see more failure, Lord. We are so thankful that as you came and became one of us, you lived a perfect life. You completely did the requirements of the law. You lived them out, even though we are so incapable of doing it. We are so thankful that because of your work and because of your sacrifice on the cross for our sins, that we do not have to relate to you that way anymore. And I pray, Father, that as the world and as different people and the enemy, they just try to cause us to believe a lie. There's something that we have to do, something that we must accomplish in order to make up for whatever they supposedly believe that you lack in. Lord, that we wouldn't fall for that. We wouldn't believe that. That we would hold on to you tightly, the truth of who you are, the truth of what you've done. That it is truly complete and that we can live in that freedom every day, knowing that the power of your spirit is the thing that will change us, the thing that can empower us. And it's that love for you that only came because you first loved us, that God will just give us the motivation that we need to live the life that you've called us to live. And so I just pray, Lord, as there are so many dangers Dangers from the world, dangers from the enemy, dangers that are trying to influence the way in which we think, the way in which we see you, the way in which we see the, how we should live our life, Lord, that we would constantly come back to your truth, to your word, that we would compare all these things with your word so that we could know what is truth and what is something that we should follow and what is a lie and something that we should avoid. But Lord, we are grateful that you have gave us your word. Lord, we're grateful that we have it, that it directs us, Lord, that it's a light to our path so that we don't have to stumble in the dark. Thank you. But Lord, I just pray that we would put it into practice. All this information, if it's just in our mind, if it's just in our brain, if it's just something we know that we don't actually apply, then it isn't really doing much for us. And so I pray that you would help us to take these truths, to take these warnings Lord, and to put them into practice, to not fall for these things, to not go down these different roads.